Good morning. It is wonderful to have you here to be with you, to open God's word and have it minister to us. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13 as we continue our study of this book of beginnings. Last week, we were introduced to the character Abram, who will be one of the most central characters in all of Scripture. It is through the line of Abram that God's promise that came as soon as sin entered the world, that he would send someone to crush Satan's reign. That deliverer will come through the line of Abram in the person of Jesus Christ. And we who are followers of Christ, Abraham is called our father of the faith, as we'll be looking more next week of that. So God calls Abram to leave his family, his country, his plans and dreams, and to go to a land he doesn't know, but that will God will show him. We find he only went part way. He traveled hundreds of miles, but he didn't come anywhere near to where God had sent him to go. Uh, he stays in a halfway position with his family until God then renews a call upon him. We, we see this in Acts 7. In verses 2 to 4, uh, Stephen is speaking and uh, he says, Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, which was not the place God showed him. But after his father died, God, notice the language, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. God had to press him forward to continue in what he had called him to do. Abram finally does arrive in Canaan, the land that God had sent him, and there God gives him wondrous promises. We saw them in the beginning of chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. The Lord says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all, the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has given to Abram extraordinary challenges and promises. And Abraham first is settling into the land that God gave. He seems to be doing well, but we saw out of fear, Abraham made decisions that looked as though they would derail the plan and promises that God had given him. But God intervened. God protected Abram, and God saved him what, from what he would have ruined and now as we reach chapter 13, Abram is back on track. And in the first part of the chapter, we see he's now returned to the land. So Abram went up from Egypt, where 
he had gone, and he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, which is the southern part of Canaan. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. There Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram is now in the land where God had sent him. He is now worshiping at an altar. He is setting his attention upon the Lord and lifting up the name of the Lord. And it, it's letting us know his, his heart and his life are reoriented toward the Lord God. It says he called upon the name of the Lord. And it's saying that in, in contrast to his recent actions where he had been working from his own thoughts rather than by the direction of what God had said to him. And now in chapters 13 and 14 that we'll cover today, uh, there are, are a series of two threats that would seem to come against the promises that God had made. Both of these threats involve Abram's nephew Lot because Abram had not fully left his kindred as the Lord had said. And because of that, there will be consequences. There will be trouble. And what the Lord wants us to see is that he has given promises by our actions, by circumstances. It, it would seem promises are threatened. We all understand that. We, we live in that. And yet we will see that Abram truly is growing in faithfulness. And isn't that what we want to experience? We know the Lord has spoken to our hearts. The Lord has saved us. We are, we're trying to follow him. We, we recognize we fail at times. We get off track. There are things we don't understand. At times we knowingly are not going the direction that, that we know God wants. We have challenges that come that at times can overwhelm us. We're not sure what to do, how to handle them. And so we who also struggle, we want to remain faithful, don't we? We want to be on a trajectory where we know and that the Lord is growing us and the people around us feel the effects of God working through us. Like Abram, we will do this by keeping our eyes upon the Lord. So the main point of the message of these chapters, to trust in the Lord, we must keep our eyes on the Lord. To trust in the Lord, we must keep our eyes, our attention on the Lord, it, it's a rather basic truth, but it is a necessary one. And so we're going to look at these two threats briefly, kind of see what is happening, and then draw from them some thoughts that hopefully will strengthen us. The first threat to the promises that God gave uh, 
involves Lot and the land itself that where they're dwelling. Verse 5 of chapter 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, he's, he's kind of quietly been in the background all this time. And now we're being reminded, yeah, Lot's been with him the whole time. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, were dwelling in that land. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. Thus, they were separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In Egypt where Abram was not meant to be. He had gathered great wealth and livestock through means that are very questionable at best. So much livestock did he and Lot gather that there's simply not enough grazing space and tensions are arising. Now, as with the famine that we saw last week, this, this tension, the problem of space, it, it's a legitimate problem. The question is how you go about responding to it. This time, Abram responds trusting in the Lord. He seeks to be a peacemaker rather than grabbing for himself, taking first position. He's willing to suffer loss. He offers Lot, take Whatever place you want, I will just go the other way. He could easily have demanded and taken culturally whatever place he wanted, but Abram doesn't do that because he trusts God will provide for me as I follow and put him first. He is recognizing he does not have to reach and grab for himself if he is faithfully following the Lord and what he does. Now Lot chooses what looks great. Verse 10, he, he lifts up his eyes, he looks to what he feels will be the most prosperous place for him to go. And his eyes are open, but his eyes are not filled with the Lord. He chooses to live in a place of great prosperity but in the shadow of an evil city, an evil people. We're, we're purposefully at the end of, 
of this description, the, the scripture puts in, and remember, the men of Lot, they were not just evil, they were filled with great evil. So much it was known. Lot does not go there unknowing of the character around him, but it looks very prosperous. In this world, we will be surrounded by ungodliness wherever we go. You, you can't somehow find a place untouched by ungodly people. If you find it, you will then ruin it, as many have said. We're, we're going to have ungodliness around us. It's part of living in this world that rebels against God. But we do not have to settle in ungodliness. We do not have to settle where we know it. It dominates. It is the culture. Lot, and we see from the New Testament, he, it's not that he had rejected the Lord, but he, as we do in these choices, we, we can justify how we'll handle it. How we'll stay faithful even though we're putting ourselves in a place that, that causes compromise just by being there. Meanwhile, the Lord, he affirms Abram and his promises. Verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Don't miss what the, the Lord tells Abram to do. Two things. He says, verse 14, lift your eyes and look. Fill your attention with what I promised you. Lot is looking for advantage and he chooses what seems good to him. Uh, Abram is looking to what God tells him. God says, go to this place. God tells him, look where I have placed you. Consider the promises I've given you. If we're to be faithful people, we, there's no way around that we have to fill our attention with the Lord. And the sort of how do we do that? It's really not complicated. How do you fill your attention with wanting to know what's going on with the NFL playoffs? You turn on the TV, you watch the games, you listen to podcasts, you talk to people about it, listen to radio, you just, you find where it's being spoken of, you find those who also are filled with thinking about it and wanting to talk about it, and you jump in with them. You join where the emphasis is on that which you want to fill your life. It's no different with the Lord. What are promises that God has given? 
what has God said is true of us and that he will do for us. We, we find those places in scripture and we go there and we spend time. Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1. Chapters filled with declarations. This is what the Lord says about those who trust in him. Those who are his. The Lord not only tells him to lift up his eyes and look. Verse 17, he then says, arise and walk. Live in the whole of these promises. Abram, I want you to settle and travel. I want you to have a sense of all I have promised you. Lot's mistake was where he did settle. Abram's success is where he settled, where the Lord tells him to settle. Live in the whole of the promises and set yourself in them. There are truths that we know of God that we will, we will pick up and look at, we'll remind ourselves, but there is an abundance that God has said about himself, how he thinks of us, how he interacts with us. What has the gospel actually brought? What change has it brought? What is our future? What has God promised? What is the spirit doing at work in us? The Lord has communicated a great deal about his heart, his intentions, his commitment, what he will stand behind, what he is doing and what he will complete. There is much to fill our heart and mind. There's a lot to live in, to settle in. This is how I think and live. So I would ask, how much of your attention is filled with what Christ has made true for you? How much actual time, attention, effort do you give to having what is true of Christ to fill your attention? Is it just when it happens to pass by? Or is there intentional pursuing of it. What you read, certainly beginning with scripture, what you listen to, how you pray. It is praying just, Lord, do this, Lord, stop this. And there's a lot of doing and stopping we need to ask of God. But most foundationally, prayer is, are we acknowledging the sheer wonder and greatness of God? Are we thanking him for the gospel? Are we working through our minds who he is, what he's done? Are we cultivating hearts of being a worshiper? Are you in a small group where people are reminding you how we live it out? Or do you just get an hour, 20 minutes, if Kyle goes long, maybe an hour 35? And who knows what today will bring? Nervous laughter there. 
If you're a parent, do you attend the rooted brunch so that you can interact with people in the exact same situation to encourage and hear from one another? Are we placing ourselves in the positions that will fill our attention with Christ, which is how we grow in faithfulness to him? There's no backdoor secret path that gets us around being faithful. The second threat to the promises is in chapter 14. Again, it involves Lot. In the first, it involves Lot and the land. Here, it's Lot and his neighbors. Now, the chapter begins with a very detailed description of a local war that was going on. There were, in verses 1 to 4, there were Four kings in the far north who had subjugated five kings in the area around Canaan. Now these were city-state kings where you would have a city and surrounded villages that were considered kingdoms. So you have far in the far north, you have uh, five that are around where Abram lives. They've subjugated them. We see that after 12 years, these kings rebel. And so in verses 5 to 7, the four kings join together. They sweep down in the land, and they're not satisfied with just coming against those who rebelled. They sweep through a much broader area. If we're going to make the effort, we're going to get more land. And then in verses 8 to 11, they utterly defeat the kings that surrounded the land of Canaan. And verse 12 is where we see Abram brought into the story. It's because of Lot. Lot's the only reason that Abram is brought into this mess at all. Verse 12, and they, those kings, also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. They took his possessions and went their way. Abram acts decisively, chapter 14, verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Uh, so we see when, when Abram moves around, it's not just him and his wife packing a tent. I, at this point, the number of servants and their families and a herdsman, it's hundreds of people that are part of the entourage of, of Abram. And he gathers them and went in pursuit as far as Dan and divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, all that those kings had gathered from all the victories they had. And he also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. There's no description of the battle. We don't see strategy other than Abram divides his forces. We're just, Abram went, Abram defeated, Abram brought, brought back. And all these nine kings and all that they're doing, that's mere backdrop to what God is doing. And what he is doing with Abram, that's the focus. And, and what Abram is doing, 
is having the Lord behind him and being victorious in what he does. After this victory by Abram, uh, two kings come out to greet him. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. His name is never given. At the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons. Take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Two kings come out. The first, we're given the name Melchizedek, who is a king unknown to us up till now. He is king of Salem, which is almost certainly what will become Jerusalem. He is a faithful priest. It's the first word that, the first time the word priest is used in the Bible. Melchizedek is is both a king, but also a priest of God, a priest who, who represents the people to God. And he comes out and he places a blessing on Abram. Abram responds by offering a tenth of all the spoil he had, which had to be an immense amount. The climax of the victory or the climax of the chapter here is not Abram's victory over the kings. It's Abram's offering to the Lord. Because that is what points us to the man and his heart. By this offering, Abram shows what he believes about the source of his hopes, who he's depending on, who his hope is in, who he trusts. We're we're seeing the man described by his actions. Now, finally, the king of Sodom, and who's also standing there, who had been utterly defeated, who had hid, we're told, in the the tar pits to try to escape. He's back. He doesn't have any of his possessions or his people. Hard to call him a king. Right now, he's just a guy. And he now speaks up. The king who fled the battle in hiding, he offers Abram what Abram already had. Doesn't thank him. But Abram refuses to keep anything. He said, not even a sandal strap. 
He says, feed my men, my allies that came with me, they can have their share. I will not have you prosper me at all. A little bit different from last week, what we saw in Egypt, isn't it? There, Abram leaned heavily and was prospered greatly by Pharaoh, by very questionable means. His his heart is different now. Notice verse 22, what he says. I lift my hand to the Lord. Usually when we think of that that phraseology in Scripture, it'll speak of the, the Lord will lift his arm, meaning the power of the Lord goes forth. The Lord lifts his arm. His arm comes against. His arm comes to strengthen. Abram says he lifts his arm to the Lord. He, it is an expression, my power is that I have grabbed hold of the Lord and he is the one who leads me. When I am in need, I lift my hand. I will grasp the hand of the Lord. I will not go in my own strength. I will no longer go by my own means and direction. His attention is on the Lord who holds the moment as well as the future. And so we come back to our main point, our theme, to trust in the Lord We must keep our eyes on the Lord. So what is it that we see when we keep our eyes on the Lord? What is it that Abram saw that we will see? I'll mention two things. The first is we will see that God's promises are indestructible. No one can stop them, destroy them, alter them. Both threats to God's promises to Abram, uh, both threats had their roots in Abram failing to follow God from the beginning as he should have in, in taking his family with him. And then trouble came because of that. However, and we must see this, God does not abandon his people when they fail. It is a theological impossibility. God will never abandon those who belong to him. Who belongs to him? Those who have put their trust in his son whom he has sent. His people are very capable of making a mess and of getting off track, of being misguided, of just being weak and having no idea what to do. And the Lord will never abandon one of them. Not ever. The promises of God are indestructible. 
Because God's promises are not based upon him looking and seeing how praiseworthy we are or how trustworthy we are or how likable we are. His promises flow out of his character alone. And his promises then are rooted and built on his faithfulness. God's character, his faithfulness. That's why his promises are indestructible. God's promise to keep those he saves. God's promises to use us. That every suffering and struggle, even great evil against us, God will use that in ways that we will glorify him for it. God will not only keep us, God will build in us. God will perfect us. God will cause us to be with him in peace. God will give us rest. God will take away every tear from your eye and heartache from your heart. God will show how deeply he loves you and is committed to you. When we set our eyes on the Lord, we will see how indestructible what he has said. His promises are what he has said. It's not our presumption, what we want. It's not the ridiculous nature of what is called the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel. It's just heretical nonsense. The Lord is not Santa or our servant. He is the eternal Holy One whom in his immeasurable grace by the blood of his son saves the unworthy, plucks them from destruction, gives them life and blesses them, not with the blessing that the world covets that passes away. He blesses us with himself. God's Promises are what his word declares, so pay attention to them. Pay attention to what God has said to you, about you, for you. Secondly, when we keep our eyes on the Lord, we will see that God's love like ocean waves never cease to bring fresh measures of grace. Have you ever gone to the, the beach in the morning before it's crowded and you sit there and it's silent except the sound of the surf, you feel the warmth and you just watch those waves one after another. And all of the holes dug and castles built and all of the debris, it's all white. You can't tell anyone was there yesterday. It's smooth and clean. 
and the waves simply never stop washing up upon the shore. And so it is with God's love for those whom he has purchased through the death of his son. Every day there is fresh grace. Every day, child of God, there is enabling for you to be faithful, for you to put away sin, for you to truly live in a godly way, for you to forgive again, for you to set yourself in obedience, for you to love others, for you to serve. There is fresh grace for all of these things every day without fail because it is the Lord God himself who is your God, your Savior, your help. It is, is no one less than the person of Jesus Christ. We should identify these graces of God. Now, we'll all say, oh yes, I know that. Without thinking about specifically those graces. Because when it's just this, yeah, I know there's graces. It's just this blob in our mind. Yes, God is gracious to us. What happens is when difficulties add up, if we're just thinking in this general fog of, yes, God blesses uh, it's easy for those very specific and real difficulties to get us off attention and they become bigger. We need to identify and be specific of grace after grace after grace so that the sheer magnitude of them reminds us that in comparison, as Paul said, these afflictions are they're light and momentary. It is the grace of God that is weighty and eternal. Identify grace. Speak of them to others. Thank God for them every day. In chapter 13, because Abram's eyes were on the Lord, it enabled him to be a man of humility and a peacemaker when tensions arose. In chapter 14, because Abram's eyes were on the Lord, it enabled him to be generous to God rather than covet the world's prosperity. <laughs> Think of the king of Sodom. When Abram said, I don't want anything, you take it all. He had a smile on his face, but he was also thinking, what a fool. He could have had it all. Time will quickly show who the fool was. What does your life reveal about where you keep your eyes? Does drama tend to follow you? Because your eyes are on the offenses against you? 
or your eyes are on what you fear. And so that through fear, through offenses, anger, disruption, it just is the tone of your life because what your eyes are on. Are you so set on what we think is success, every advantage, anything that would be a benefit that regardless of how it affects your walk with the Lord or your family or your soul, anything that seems an advantage, you're always going to grab. Every promotion is not a good idea. Every advancement is not necessarily going to help your life. I'm not against getting raises. Just throwing that out there so people who are in charge of that know. No problem with them. Advancement, that can be good, but not automatically. What does it do? Is, if you have a business, just growing the business endlessly, what is that doing to your family, to your time? Is, is a promotion really going to be good? Is that new place, is the bigger house with their bigger mortgage? Are these things always best? At times they can be. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's not worth the cost. Are we looking at what will help us truly as we love and serve the Lord? Is God in your life? But if you're honest, he is not the one you have set before your eyes. I want to wrap up by going back to chapter 13, verse 14. And we'll close with this. 13, 14 when the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look. But what's missing in a lot of the translations is there's a small Hebrew modifier there that most literally is, would you please look? And the Lord only uses that four times, including here in the scripture. When the Lord says to a person, would you please look? And each time, he is asking someone who is his to consider something that of itself seems impossible. Beyond what is reasonable, beyond what could ever take place. And in those times, the Lord with his promises, please, would you look at what I am placing before you? Would you consider what, what I am saying to you, though it may seem more than you can handle? What is God asking you to trust him for that seems too much for you? Where being righteous in a particular area, being faithful, you don't really believe you can live differently. The Lord said, please, please look 
at what my son has done, not only to break the guilt of sin, but to break the power of it. Or someone has offended, hurt you so deeply, you can't escape it. The Lord would say, please, look at the overwhelming depth and breadth of my love for you. The Lord who came for us in flesh, the Lord who died for us, the Lord who says he will keep us. This is the one who asks us, please, would you look at me and what I have done and what I promise and what I will do? Will we not look to him? Because this we must know. Trust will never fill your life until Christ fills your eyes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see you, Lord Jesus, with clarity. For those who have never truly seen what you have done to come, to humble yourself, to bear our guilt and our shame, to go into death and the grave, to defeat it all, to be raised from the dead and reign that we might be with you. Lord, strip away all that would distract us or deceive us that we would see you clearly. We who have trusted in you, may we see how deeply rooted are these truths, how great and wonderful, eternal they are. May we see what is important and what is not. Lord, in your grace, do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.